Hey everybody, welcome back to Off the Couch, where we take a closer look each week at the wide, weird, and wonderful world of running. I'm your host, Jonathan Ellsworth. I'm also the founder of Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Off the Couch is presented by CBG Trails, and the CBG Trails app is the only complete trail map app of Crested Butte and the Gunnison Valley, Colorado. So download the app today and start exploring. Brendan Leonard and I recently talked to Megan Hicks, who is one hell of a trail runner in her own right, and she is also the managing editor of irunfar.com, which is a website that, among other things, produces some of the best race coverage out there, or, as Megan so eloquently puts it, they cover and capture everything from the puke fests to the transcendental moments that make up this sport of trail running. Megan is also just a real delight to talk to, even if, as you'll hear, she made Brendan and me work really hard to get her to talk about her accomplishments. But try we did, and along the way, Megan painted for us a very interesting picture about her life and background. She told the terrific story of how I Run Far came to be. She talked about what motivates her to run. We got a very good glimpse into her very unusual but quite wonderful combination of self-deprecation and abundant optimism. She talked about some of her lowest lows and highest highs as a runner, what she thinks is the most misunderstood thing about ultra races, and we even talked about the very specific food that I now aim to deliver to her in one of her future races, right at one of those moments where everything seems really hard and dark and she could really use a pick-me-up. So yes, the point is here, we cover a whole lot of interesting ground. So let's go ahead and get to my conversation with Brendan Leonard and Megan Hicks. Megan, how are you today and where are you today? I'm speaking with you from Silverton, Colorado. Um, it's a bright and shiny morning here. I just climbed Kendall Peak, which is a little over 13,000 feet before we started talking. So I had the endorphin rush and I've had some food and I'm feeling good. Wow, Brendan, right off the bat, I just feel lazy already. <laughs> like I, I believe Brendan today has eaten some vegan donuts. I didn't even go get them. <laughs> brought them to my house and um are you in your pajamas brendan no i got dressed because luke comes over to record this and it would be awkward if i were <laughs> not dressed so yeah i'm not dressed professionally though i'm wearing a free <laughs> t-shirt from torchy's tacos uh so yeah amazing yeah this is my this is gonna be my big accomplishment for the day so <laughs> <laughs> It's tough talking to all of these accomplished runner types. Like they are just, yeah, just right off the bat. It's just, uh, they're all out getting after it. And yeah, I mean, full disclosure, I may be sitting in blister headquarters right now, actually literally in pajamas. I feel like some of the best work in the world is done in pajamas though. Yeah. Well, Megan, Brendan and I are both very happy to be speaking with you and as Brendan and I, even before this Off the Couch podcast was a thing and we were talking about potential guests, your name came up in the very early days. So we are um, grateful that you are making this time and we're probably cutting short, you know, big impressive hikes and runs for, for you to uh, be talking with us. So thank you for that. Thanks, gentlemen. That's really nice of you. If we could get just a sort of brief version of your origin story, uh, where you grew up and, and your first experience running where you, where it sort of clicked for you and you thought, oh, I might be kind of good at this. Oh, so define good. Well, <laughs> here we go, Brendan. All right. So where, where it clicked for you and you decided, I kind of like this. How about that? Yeah, sure. That's better. I am a child of the Midwest, though I was born in upstate New York. My dad's job moved us around a couple times um, when I was a kid. And so when I, when I say I'm going home these days, I go home to visit family in um, Minnesota, the suburbs of St. Paul, Minneapolis. And that's where I started running. Um, a grade school friend and I in eighth grade decided we wanted to join 
cross country and track and field in high school. And we decided that if we were going to do that, we better start training. So we did. Um, but the only problem is when you're in eighth grade, your parents don't let you go a lot of places. And so our training was made up of like uh, laps through our neighborhood, laps through the indoor gym at the community center where we were allowed to like play unsupervised and laps around. Um, I don't even think it had a name like Minnesota is the land of 10,000 lakes and we would run around this pond that I think had no name and it was like one third of a mile around the pond. And those were the formative years. Um, I loved running. I didn't mind if it was snowing or if it was like blazing hot or if I had had spaghetti for dinner and my stomach hurt. Um, I just loved everything about it. I loved the way your body feel felt when you were moving. And even though it was suburban Minnesota and hot and humid and mosquitoes and really cold and windy and snowy in the winter, none of it mattered. I loved moving like that. And as I understand it, you didn't get into trail running for, it, it was like a revelation later in your 20s. That's true. Yeah. When I, so I did like high school, um, I ended up doing track and field only in high school and I played tennis also. And then when I went to college, it was somehow discovered that I was better at doubles tennis than running. So I spent most of my college years playing doubles tennis, but once you graduate from college, like you quickly realize that um, unless you want to stay in a city, like around tennis leagues and country clubs and stuff like that, tennis doesn't come easy, but running, you can do it anywhere. So I pretty quickly transferred back to running. And all I knew about then was like road races, you know, 5Ks, 10Ks, half marathons, marathons. And so I did several years of that. And um, when I, yeah, I think it, Somewhere between before age 25, I was working in a national park in Texas, and a woman moved there um, who called herself a trail runner and asked me if I wanted to go trail running. And I had never imagined a thing. Like I did a ton of hiking and a ton of backpacking, but uh, and a ton of running on the roads of this national park. Like I would go hike all day and then do a road run in the evening to get a few road miles in and this woman uh, like blew my mind that I could combine both interests. And um, so we would go out on these trail runs and she would kill me. Um, Amy Davis, I love you still, because like you taught me right away that if you're gonna run on trails, you gotta run on trails and get used to rocks and roots and steep stuff up and down. And it was sort of like a harsh entry, but it was so good. Yeah, was it was there a feeling where you kind of just said, "Wow, this is it. I really this really clicks for me." Yeah, I mean there are several runs that we did um, you know, where you're just winding your way down a trail. You've already gone to your high point, so the hard part is done and you're kind of just flowing downhill and where you like get that same feeling of running, but you know, you're surrounded by trees and views and it's just so different from the roads. And it's, for me, like that's, that's, that's where I feel free. And this, uh, the early experiences in, is this in Big Bend National Park? Is that right? Yeah, exactly. Okay. So how far are you and Amy going on your first few runs? Is it, are you, are you just getting totally served and like barely finishing or how is 100% getting served. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, she would propose these things like some of them were short, like I don't want to, I don't want to say that she went out and killed me every time like some of our runs were six miles and five miles on some sort of iconic hiking trails at Big Bend, like out to the chimneys and to the window, which are famous landmarks for people who have been to that park, but then she would propose like these 12 mile point to point runs on a dirt road or a trail and um, on some of those runs, like I have very vivid memories of seeing her ponytail, like really far in the distance and being like, <laughs> I, I think that's her ponytail. I think <laughs> just bouncing. Yeah. Looking so lively you. and the opposite of how I feel. <laughs> <laughs> so, and then from there you, 
how did you transition to start doing races like ultra marathons then or, or how did that progress i guess um i think t- my technical like first trail race was um in 2005 i moved to from big bend to yellowstone national park and i believe my first actual trail race was an xterra trail race at what used to be the Moonlight Basin ski area. I think it's been like gobbled up into Big Sky Ski Resort in Montana. That was like maybe an hour and a half away from where I was working in Yellowstone. And I want to say it was around 12K. Like I've never been able to dig up the results online of it, Um, but I have very fond, a very fond memory of it being basically like a training day for all of the local um, high school Nordic teams. And so it was all these um, kids like 10 years younger than me who were absolutely flying. And um, I didn't, I mean, I got my, I got my ass kicked, but I didn't get my ass kicked by everybody. And I remember thinking like, oh, I can kind of hang. I I think I can figure this out. Um, And then I did some more shorter distance trail races. Like I did a I did a 5k trail race in Butte, Montana, and on the starting line was the iconic Nikki Kimball, who was like in her heyday of trail running and ultra running at the time. And I only knew her from magazines, and I'm pretty sure she finished like seven minutes in front of me in a 5k. Um, but I remember being like starstruck, and um, you know, like just sort of these first connections to the trail communities were really, really memorable. Um, I honestly, like, I'd have to go back and look at my own results to know when my first ultra is, though. It might have been, like, might have been the Goblin Valley 50K in the San Rafael Swell. Mm-hmm. This is kind of amazing to me that you're not totally sure. <laughs> <laughs> How many of these have you run-ish? I don't know, maybe 60, 70. My God. So you're, so you're, when you do this race, you're already, you've already become sort of a fan of the, of, you know, trail running and ultra running. You're reading magazines and stuff and and being sort of starstruck. Yeah. So this was like ultra running magazine and trail runner magazine where you're like print access to the scene. And then this was like circa the um, boom cycle of like the blog spot blog. Oh, yeah. And so there were trail runners and ultra runners who kept these blogs and, you know, would describe, I mean, the early blog days, like weren't the proudest days on planet earth, I don't think, because <laughs> it was all about quantity over quality, but I would just read every detail of these you know, these awful but miraculous races people would do. And yeah, it was, I definitely was um, absorbing things um, from the periphery before I started to meet people and, and become a part, become a part of the community I was watching. And did you, are you writing at all at this point? No, I am a um, communications person at Yellowstone National Park. And so my job is I work um, night shifts uh, for 12 hours. I work from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. So I answer telephones. I uh, talk on the radio to rangers and scientists and whomever is out and about in the park doing things. And I write reports and then I have seven days off um, from my night shifts, and I um, am spending like all of that time going out and exploring um, the trails of Montana and Wyoming. At that point, like it was pretty, it became obsessive pretty quick. In in what way are you like marking them off on a map and trying to do the entire park, or? Um, no. Although there are na- there are national parkies who are those people. Um, which is pretty amazing. Um, no, just, uh, I think what inspired me the most and continues to inspire me is like getting to places with views. Like I always want to get on, 
get on top of things or at least get above the trees so I can see like where that river valley goes and where that ridge line leads to. Um, yeah, getting, getting to places to be able to see what the world looks like is what is a, is a pretty big driving force and definitely drove me then. I think you told me a story about, I think it was like the Rocky Raccoon 100. Is that your first 100? That was my first 100. You have such a good memory. Yeah. Well, this is, uh, this is when we were interviewing you for our film and I forgot to turn the audio on, but I do remember it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I think, I think there's a story. Well, I don't know. Can you just sort of tell the story of that race and what happened? Because I think it's really interesting. Yeah, so I don't remember what year it was, maybe like 2007, something like that. So I had done a couple ultras and I had been around a couple long races, but I didn't really know. Yeah, I had no idea that you get really tired when you run 100 miles. <laughs> huh. Most optimistic person I've ever talked to. I like it. I... Jonathan, I literally had a boyfriend when I was like 20 or 22 who was like, you're far too optimistic. <laughs> I, I still remember that. Um, and this was a loop course. I believe it was like two, uh, 20 mile loops that you did five times. And I think I was um, maybe around mile 80. So what is this? Maybe I'm I've started my last loop now or I'm finishing my second to last loop and um, nighttime was coming and I had I had run pretty fast like I, I don't know how fast it was I'd have to look back at it um, but at the time like most of the there were very few runners in front of me and a, a few runners behind me and I was probably going too fast um, and I got to where I couldn't really run anymore and um, I was sort of dizzy and um, I couldn't see like night was coming and I felt like my eyes were sort of cloudy. And, um, you know, now with the experience that I have, like I can tell you, I probably was going too fast and should have like meted out my effort a little bit more. And, you know, when you're dizzy and you can't see very well at mile 80, you're probably like bonking and maybe you should have some sugar but I didn't, I didn't know these things. And so I, uh, uh, like sat on the ground with my pacer and we watched some runners go by and I was like, well, they're running and I can't, so I, I better turn back. <laughs> so I turned back to the previous aid station and dropped out from the race. And, um, I remember very clearly like telling this story to season several seasoned ultra runners in the months to come. And they were like, what do you mean you dropped out of the race because you were tired? Um, why didn't you just sit there and eat some food or keep walking? Like, don't you realize if you walk fast, you can walk at four miles per hour and still get there in plenty of time. And I remember thinking, wow, I have a lot to learn about this sport. <laughs> Yeah, I love the revelation that, like, <laughs> oh, yeah, I got tired, so I quit. Like, you're just describing a lot of people's last 30 or 40 miles of 100, I feel like. Like, I got tired, too. Literally everybody is tired at the end of a 100-mile race. I feel like most humans are afforded, like, most human ultra runners are afforded, like, some, maybe one transcendental experience in their career where for some strange reason, like you don't feel fatigue. And, um, but yeah, I mean, every, everybody else, except for that one transcendental moment, like you get tired running 100 miles, Brendan. Yes, you do. Megan. Now, of course, the easiest follow-up question in the history of any interview, I want to know about your one transcendental moment. So it, yeah, like, um, in 2013, I was running the Marathon de Saab. This is a multi-day stage race in Morocco. I've done it now a bunch of times. I love the race. I love the Sahara Desert. Um, but I, uh, I had this transcendental like two hours. It was at the end of the fourth stage, which was about 50 miles. And You've already, before you start the 50 mile day, you've already run three days that are like between 20 and 25 miles. So um, you're starting with some miles on your legs. It's hot. Um, 
you're also carrying a fairly heavy backpack full of all of the supplies you need for the week and a bunch of water because it's the Sahara Desert. And um, nightfall is coming and the sky turns these, it goes through like the entire color rainbow and the sand is lit up this beautiful like coral pink and then like you know rusty red and then like pale yellow and then it's cool and you get to turn on your headlamp and your world becomes like this bubble of light and you're just moving through it and I remember I had a package of cliff shot blocks in my hand and I remember being like um, you just like put one in your mouth and start sucking on it. It was like jet fuel and you could like feel yourself speeding up for like the time that it takes, took to meta metabolize those calories and nothing was wrong. Like everything was wrong, but nothing was wrong. Of course your feet hurt. Of course your knees hurt. Of course your back hurt, but then nothing was wrong. It just all went away for a period of time. It was magical. Uh, and then, and then you won the race, right? <laughs> Not mistaken. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Brendan. <laughs> yeah. Do, do you oh feel like, my God. Yeah. I feel like just from what I know about you, Megan, you'd rather be known as a journalist than a runner. Does that sound accurate to you? Because I think you downplay how, how well you do at this sort of thing. That's really nice of you to say. I'm just being objective here, lady. I mean... I do feel like as a journalist, I spend, I mean, I spend hundreds of hours of every year surrounded by people who are at literally the top of the sport. You know, we're talking about like the top 1% of people. And I, I mean, I also know objectively I'm not, I'm not in that crowd. You know, I, I might be like when I'm at my best, I'm top 5%, top 7%. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a stairway to oblivion sometimes, isn't it? Like when you're comparing, when you're comparing things that it can seem like really trivial, but I do, I mean, I do feel like in my role as a journalist, like constantly being surrounded by people who are just so, so, so very good at what they do. You kind of know exactly where you are. Yeah, well, I mean, so you've you've won a bunch of races, uh, women's fastest known time on Nolan's 14, which is, I mean, not that many people have even completed that. So I think of like someone who's a, a basketball journalist interviewing like LeBron James and how good they would do playing one-on-one -on -one basketball against each other. <laughs> and you know what I mean? It's such a, it's a great analogy. It's yes. an interesting thing to think about in this sport. Like you could interview one of these people you're saying in the top 1%, but theoretically you could say, well, do you want to just go for a trail run this afternoon? <laughs> and they wouldn't look at you like, Megan, there's no way you could keep up with me. They would say, sure. Yeah, that sounds fun. You know, compared to, compared to the way we cover other sports, you know, where it's most of your knowledge is from probably the last time you played competitive basketball which was high school or or whatever and you're still doing the thing at a very high level i i think i'm objectively can argue that uh which which i just think is interesting well i i i really i i so appreciate you pointing that out because i have made it like my side goal to try to ma maintain myself as one of like the fittest running journalists out there because there is this creep as you um, sit in front of computers for more and more hours and as you you know do all these red-eye flights to strange countries to cover races and um, you, you, you trend it's easy to trend towards sedentarism and sort of losing using your your own personal athletic identity and so like that to me that's really important and especially like hitting age 40 now and moving into this next decade of life. Like I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to trend towards the sedentarism that I do see in, in running journalism. So thank you for, um, for identifying me as a, a journalist who can run, which I try to do that. <laughs> 
how have you set goals for yourself in terms of let's talk about you know the next 10 years the next 20 years the next 30 years 40 years so the lens through which i see my my world right now is like how to create sustainability um both in like work life and running um because any one of those things could like run away with itself and and throw everything off balance and i i do admit i have like it's easy for me to overdo any of them you know to be like oh this home improvement project i shall work on it for 39 hours and not sleep or um you know this article is not perfect i must work on it nonstop and i won't leave my computer and i'll sit here like a hunchback eating potatoes while i stare at my computer <laughs> so i i know my own tendency and i know how uh, one thing can take over the other so that's that's sort of the lens that i'm viewing my world now is how can i create a a world that allows me to do like the couple couple things that I'm most passionate about in life and sport and not let one pounce on the other. Um, the, you know, kind of the, the downside to that is that it turns into sort of this Jill of all trades situation where you're like, oh, I'm kind of good at writing and I'm kind of good at running, but as a, like a natural type A type person, sometimes that can be a little bit hard to process, but yeah, sustainability, sleeping at night, running a couple hours a day, good posture at the computer, water, not potatoes. <laughs> True or false, you have spent at least a little bit of time thinking about running a hundred ultras. I should feel like I should knock on wood as I say this, but I think I'll make it unless something terrible happens. I don't, I don't know how many I've done. I don't know how long it will take to get there, but. Not knowing how many you've done is a problem. <laughs> I think we need to, we need to tally these up for her, Brendan. Yeah. Well, then the answer would be sort of false then if you're not counting. So. I was going to say the answer was true because she said she would get there. Yeah, you're right. But but no one will know. <laughs> right. <laughs> but she's Megan a, won't know when she gets she's there. She's an optimist though, right? So she's just like, Yeah, I don't know how many I've run, but I'm sure I'll get a hundred. <laughs> Megan, have you done a hundred ultras? I don't know, probably <laughs> some point in the last yeah. I don't think I have. <laughs> you you mentioned uh turning forty and looking at the next decade and you know, age is something that, of course, happens to all of us, which is preferable to the alternative <laughs> of not aging. But do you think that running is something you can get better at without necessarily getting faster? Yes. And like that's probably half of the reason that I like ultras is it's there are more pieces to it than just your inherent like talent and running speed it's a game it's like a it's like a board game of you know efficiency and nutrition and adapting to the weather and um you know pacing yourself you know meeting out your energy so that you have equal parts you know like you can use a decent amount of energy at the end of the race as you do at the beginning to me i love all the nerdy nerdy parts about it and yeah playing with that intellectual aspect of the sport i definitely think that there's room for people to improve as they age without necessarily getting faster i mean at some point your the amount that you slow down as a result of your age is probably going to start, you know, superseding whatever improvements of efficiency and intellect you can make. But I mean, I think there's plenty of examples in ultra running of people who are staying on the on on the other side of that, like way into their late forties and even early fifties. So I definitely think the answer to your question is yes. Yeah, and the, and there's people still finishing 
hundreds in their in their seventies and uh, I, I mean stuff it's, like that. It's amazing. I I just want to be able to um, power walk around the block when I am that age <laughs> for real. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, I've had those some of those people vomiting next to me at <laughs> midnight. Not not while I was vomiting, they were vomiting, but in finish. Uh, do do you think? Uh, what do you think people who aren't in the sport at all or have no experience with it? What are some of the things that they don't know that would make it seem more reasonable to them? You know, because most people. I mean, statistically, most people aren't going to run a marathon, let alone 50 miles, let alone 100 miles. So you're getting to like the fringe of the fringe of the fringe of society where if you sit down next to somebody at an airplane and say, oh, I'm on my way to run a 100 mile race. They're they're just like, whoa, are you an alien? You know, <laughs> or or like what what do you think people don't understand about that? Well, I think. I mean, people who don't know about ultras are really missing out on things like walking. Like, <laughs> um, you know, in, in a road marathon, you're supposed to run the whole thing, like, except for when you stop to take your water cup or whatever. But in ultras, it's perfectly acceptable to walk. And I mean, that's how most people finish most ultra mar- most of the longer ultra marathons by doing at least some walking. Um, and I think that most people who haven't been exposed to ultras don't realize that it is a sport of normal people, like far and away, um, most people who run ultras, I mean, you would see them at the grocery store and you'd be like, oh, well, they choose healthy foods. You know, they only, they probably look like a wee bit trimmer than, your average citizen, but they're, you know, people with desk jobs and they're people with families carting screaming children around in minivans. And, um, yeah, they're like, they're completely normal people. Um, and at ultra marathons, you eat junk food. It's, it's like 100% acceptable to eat junk food (laughs) for the whole time. And people who don't know this should. (laughs) (laughs) I, I described a, a 50 mile race to a, a friend of a friend who had never done anything like that before. And he said, so it sounds like basically it's a cookie scavenger hunt out in the woods. <laughs> and I go, yeah, that's, that's a great way to put it, actually. It that is, is amazing. You just, you go find the cookies. Scavenger hunt. Then you go to the next cookie spot. So much of so much of everything is just marketing and branding. I think we could like triple like the number of ultra signups by just calling these instead <laughs> scavenger hunts for cookies in the woods. <laughs> I mean, yeah, but you kind of have to, it's kind of a fast scavenger hunt. It's really long, you know, that's the, that's the part where people may, we'll, we don't we'll want to sandbag them too much. We'll put that in the fine print. I love it. I want to talk a little bit about writing, like actually literally when you ever started writing at all let alone when you found yourself starting to write about running? I have been keeping diaries and journals since I was a kid. There's like Tupperwares of them in a storage room, and I'm scared to read them. I really (laughs) haven't. I haven't read a lot of them. I also made books, like a bunch of them when I was little. Like I would take a piece of cardboard and I would wrap the front and back in it uh, in like, I don't know, wrapping paper. And I would make like a little title on it. And then I would put pages in it and I'd write a story and I would write these books with like, you know, um, scribbling basically, because I was almost too young to write very well. I remember writing one about the Challenger accident. Um, And I remember writing one about the Gulf War. And I remember writing one about when my grandma passed away. Um, So I, yeah, I I don't know why I took that up at such a a young age, but I do remember doing all that kinds of stuff when I was, yeah, when I was wee. I used to have this dream. Um, I don't know that I've ever said this 
out loud. Like I know I've written it in journals a million times that I wanted to be a writer for National Geographic because <laughs> it looked like such an exotic job. You know, go tell these amazing stories at places around the world. But I also wanted to be a farmer and a ballet dancer and a pediatrician. So it could have gone a lot of ways. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> By the way, I couldn't help but think when you're talking about making these books as a kid, given sort of your optimism, I love the idea that maybe you then like took this into the kitchen and you were like, I have invented this new creation <laughs> called the book. <laughs> and like, you know, screw Gutenberg. Um, yeah. <laughs> This would be great. Way okay, to go, so the, Megan. That's really yeah, great. Yeah. Let me introduce you to the library. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but we did, we finally did unearth this thing that early on there were some uh, aspirations of perhaps being a writer. Definitely. Well, I don't, I mean, I, yeah, I thought the National Geographic gig was probably never going to happen. So I also remember like, oh, maybe I could get a gig with Outside Magazine. <laughs> Turns out uh, if you want to do that, you just need to scribble some doodle cartoons. <laughs> you know, I think, it, I think it's fair to point out that you do make a living traveling to exotic locations all around the world and writing about it just not for National Geographic. Is that, don't you think that's accurate? It's it's 100% accurate. Um, it's like maybe not quite as sexy as I imagined it when I was like 13. Um, because as it turns out, like you end up staring at your computer for many hours in these exotic locations in order to write. Like I didn't think about that when I was 13. Yeah, it was going to be all swashbuckling. No exactly. Typing, basically, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think even people who write for National Geographic would probably say the same thing. Be like, God, this wasn't the fantasy of my youth. But, <laughs> yeah. So, Megan, you you write, and then you also do a whole lot of interviews. Do you sort of enjoy both of those aspects equally? Do you prefer one over the other? Has that shifted over the years? I always feel like I'm a better communicator when I can write things down as opposed to saying them out loud. I always, I always like, as I'm interviewing somebody, I'll like think to myself, oh, I should have said it this way or, oh, I missed that moment. Whereas in writing, when you're writing something, you get that second chance. Yeah, I mean, I, I love both. What we do at I Run Far is like really two-pronged. You know, it's trying to provide interesting things for people to read um, every weekday of the year, but then it's also trying to tell the stories of 10 or 12 globally competitive races around the world and like, you know, really like get in deep and, you know, tell, tell the story beginning to end, you know, puke fests and transcendental moments and all. And um, yeah, I mean, there, there are two, two very different prongs and they're both, uh, you know, wonderful and heartbreaking at the same time. Could you kind of describe how you went from your national park jobs to eventually, was there's probably like a three or four year gap in there to, to, uh, writing for I run far full time. Yeah. Um, almost 11 years ago now I met Brian Powell at the trans Rockies run, which is a six day stage race in Colorado. And I, was working at Yellowstone National Park. I just landed a job at um, Yosemite National Park and was getting ready to move there. And Brian was a food and drug attorney for a firm in Washington, D.C. And he had this like side gig of this little, it was like a personal blog that he had just like just started to professionalize and sort of turn it into more of a editorial a baby editorial website as opposed to a personal blog at the time that we met each other. And um, all of it became intertwined. Um, you know, we dated cross country and um, eventually decided to pursue a relationship with each other. And at the same time, uh, we also decided that Brian would pursue Iron Far full time. And so to do that, he came to Yosemite and, you know, I continued my national park job there and, you know, was the little 
angel funder for the first year or two of I Run Far's existence when it was too small of a website for advertising. Or What year is this, just to make sure I'm tracking? I think this is 2000 and I think we're looking at like 2009 and 10 right now. And about that time, I Run Far was starting to take off and I was helping Brian like as a volunteer where I'd edit stuff and write some articles and we were just starting to cover races and so I'd go and help him cover races. Just slowly became a little bit too much work for me to keep my national park gig. So um, I quit that and which meant we could no longer live at Yosemite. So we ended up in Park City, Utah and um, during that time, Brian did I Run Far full time and I did like a combination of things. So I had like a ski and snowshoe guiding gig and a babysitting gig and I did freelance writing and I did I Run Far stuff and I did a little bit of everything to pay the bills. Um, and as the years went on, um, I Run Far began to take more and more and more of my time such that I think it was early 2013, I became a full-time employee of Iron Far. And um, ever since then, we've been uh, working together to publish the website. Brian does the business side and I do the editorial side. Yeah, Megan, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about growing from a non-paying uh, personal blog into uh, a business. Um, I was actually running with a guy at, um, my last race and we somehow started talking about, uh, I run far and he, he said, well, I hope those guys get paid. I hope they make money off of that. I, uh, I follow like races through them on Twitter and it's really cool. And I'm, you know, I'm not struggling through the race at this point, but I did take the time to say, well, you can do more than hope. They have a Patreon page <laughs> where ah. you can give them money, which is what I do. And <laughs> thusly, they do make money because I we give them money to do these things. And uh, I'm not sure if he did, but I can give you his, uh, I can look him up on ultrasound. <laughs> up and we'll, we'll put his email uh, in the show notes and then everyone can just, you know, badger him. Yeah. And I actually may not know who the guy was. I might have to look through the race photos and find his number and then look his name up. So it might be a lot of chasing somebody down for a couple bucks a month. But, if you're into <laughs> it, but I mean, I guess I've, I have personal experience with that too, but um, it's, you know, even since probably since Brian started the, the site and then you came on, there's been a lot of changes in, you know, Oh, ad revenue or how, how do you make money this way? And um, like, is yeah I guess how do you see that and how has that changed for you guys um well maybe you have experience with this idea too but I think in like running media or outdoor media it's not at this point like and now we're talking like being a decade into it and it's a it's a different world now than when we first started and when Brian first started um but it's it's not I think it's not hard to make money, but it's very hard to make money and maintain the ethos that you want to maintain. Like everybody offers these beautiful like ways to sell out, you know, like I want to buy your content. I want to um, tell you how you should publish and what you should publish and what your voice should be. And if you don't do that, you know, or if you do do that, then we'll advertise. Um, you know, I want to pay you to put these reviews on your website. Like, um, I think it's really difficult to, uh, like, create your mission, create your ethos, and stand by it, and then still make money. <laughs> um, how we make money is three-pronged standard advertising, sponsorship of our race coverage, and then in the last couple of years, the Patreon platform has grown to, to, to really sustain us through the, well, as you know, the ups and downs of um, like the standard advertising world is, is, not, a, is not a steady store, source of income and fluctuates wildly from month to month. 
And so Patreon has been a, a nice steady, a steady source to kind of bridge those gaps. Yeah. And if, if one of those advertising things goes away or becomes very much less, you can sort of still survive on the uh, contributions of the people who are actually really benefiting firsthand from that stuff. I, I don't know. Yeah. If you'd agree with that. Yeah, totally. I think it's, I think it's great the coverage you guys do. And I, I think it's also, you know, when I talk about comparing running to basketball or something like that, that we really, the only way we have to see what is going on in real time. in a lot of these races is the I run far Twitter feed, you know, it's interesting that that's, it's still very, very grassroots. Um, it, and like, that's intentional. Like we, we don't, we don't want to be uh, showy. We don't want to put lights out on a course. We don't want to, um, you know, chase runners with cameras and, you know, affect the way the course, the race is. I, I mean, I really do feel that um, there are some races where, you know, there are cameras chasing runners down trails on bikes and on, on foot, and it changes the way that the race plays out, you know. Um, people behave differently when there's a camera in front of them. And, um, yeah, I don't necessarily think that that's um, good for our sport to have that type of stuff like way out in the backcountry when it's supposed to be you and your competitors in the natural world. And so, yeah, the way we cover races is, is 100% intentional, trying to reflect the, the, the places through which people are running and trying not to, not to affect how the race plays out. I'd love to ask you a little bit about these pre-race interviews and post-race interviews that you guys do so much of. And I guess I'm, particularly curious about the candor of the runners. Have you identified any kind of trend in that regard? I feel like it's maybe more individualistic because there are some people who, you know, hold their cards pretty tight and, you know, are, they'll, they'll like be pretty guarded with you pre-race, but then post-race, it's like, wow, you, that was like kind of a too much information moment, but that was also awesome. Um, <laughs> but then there are people who are sort of strategically uh, using an interview to kind of play with the competition a little bit and like, you know, say something that sort of gets the people that they're going to be racing with thinking that they're maybe going to behave one way or they're going to use a strategy and maybe they end up doing it and they're, you know, just kind of, um, yeah, sort of intimate, intimidating, trying to intimidate the, their competition. And sometimes that I can tell that they're playing, you know, the things that they're saying, they're trying to play with their competition a little bit. You do see, um, like there, there are certain things that, you know, like, sometimes there's a brand that's like pushing a certain type of shoe. And so, uh, you know, you'll be like, okay, you know, I, I interviewed three athletes of X brand and they all mentioned the shoe in the interview. Okay. We get it. Like X brand is trying to push this shoe at this race. Um, so you do see a little bit of, um, you know, sort of brand and sponsor intervention, but for the most part, for the most part, I, yeah, I feel like it's, it still trends towards, what, what is particular to the individual we're interviewing? Well, I'm curious your thoughts of the people who finish last in, uh, in races, in these long races. And I, I think there's a saying in sports that second place is the first loser. And I feel like in ultras, last place is the last winner uh, in, my, <laughs> in my observation. Like you, I was amazed when I came to ultra running at how supportive people are of runners front middle back of pack and how the last finishers and the people who've been out there like toiling and laboring the longest are honored almost the most like you know the year that Gunhild Swanson finished the Western States 100 just a couple seconds before the cutoff 
she had more interviews and more traction in the media afterwards than the race winners did. Like, can you even name the race winners that year? I think deep down in the human species is something that connects us all. Like, we are all connected by a thing that we feel that we can't, like, put our fingers on, but we know it's there. And in those moments of, like, watching somebody cross the finish, like, knowing how tired they must be because they were out there for double the time as you, like, that's just, you know, like, we are all connected. Yeah, and it's like running is that least common or lowest common denominator, I feel like. like if you're an adult and you want to do a sport and also get cheered <laughs> while doing it, you should try to run a half marathon, think, right? <laughs> That's amazing. It's so crazy because you're out there and you're just like, oh, yeah, I'm like dead last. And there's just people on the streets cheering for you. And you're like, oh, okay, thank you. Thank Thanks you. for coming out of your house. Um not entirely related, but what is your, yeah, maybe sort of related. What is your personal relationship with, with pain while doing these things, while running? When I was in um, high school track, my parents would come and watch and they would like stand at the, at the fence. And I mentioned before that I, I was pretty much terrified of the 400 and 800. I mean, I would do it, but I was terrified of how painful it was. And I remember very clearly at one meet coming up to my parents and saying, you know, something along the lines of like, I'm scared of how much it's going to hurt or I'm scared. And, you know, they said, why? And I said, because it's going to hurt. And my dad said something, or my mom said something like, well, then you don't have to do it, Megan. And my dad was like, yes, she does. This is part of, you know, this is, you know, part of what life is. It's not always easy, but it's good. Um, and I, I think about that moment a lot. Um, yeah, not everything, com- not, not everything in life comes easy. Like some of the best things are at the end of a, a difficult journey. Have you had, have you had an, like just an extreme uh, moment where you had to overcome something like that, like the lowest low, worst, worst moment ever. I mean, there's a couple races that have been really, really hard for me, but like the lowest low in terms of like this pain is, there's a lot of pain and it's going to go on for a long time still. If I want to finish this thing, it was the Tour de Géant, which is a 200 mile nonstop race in the Italian Alps. And I started it like really under, prepared. I had an injury that I had to take like six months off of running and um, I could prepare for it by hiking, but by not running, but I couldn't run. And that just doesn't prepare you for a running race. Um, So at that race, it was like a couple days of pain, which just sounds crazy to say that like that now. But I, the entire time I was like, well, if I finish it, I don't have to come back again. (laughs) but if I do finish it but if I don't finish it I'm gonna like I I might feel like I have to come back and there's unfinished business and at a race in the Italian Alps there's beautiful pasta at the aid stations so there are like moments of of heaven amongst the hell but that was that was probably the most extended bout of discomfort that I have like you know, it's, it's, it's made up. Like you're like, Oh, I don't have to be doing this, but I'm doing this and it sucks. And it's going to suck for the rest of today and tomorrow and for many, many more miles. And I'm choosing to do it. It's just so crazy. <laughs> yeah, it, it is. And like, I've heard that I've heard that race in particular described as a PhD of ultra running. Um, I think Luke Nelson told me that it's, so painful. it's tough. I kind of want to know what, Megan, what your take is on why you would recommend people do some of the things that you have done or covered or, you know, just experienced, even though they think maybe that it might not be for them, you know, like, oh, I'm not a runner or I don't, I could never do 
something for that many miles or, or something like that. We touched on it a little bit earlier where you said that, you know, people who do these races or types of events, you know, are fairly normal people in most aspects of their lives. Uh, I always say at the beginning, like, I'm just going for a, going to do this stupid idiot run with all my stupid idiot <laughs> friends, you know, because <laughs> we're just all have the same screw loose, you know. Uh, but what do you think, like, you know, quote unquote, normal people could could get out of it? I mean, like, let's not force anybody to do anything they don't want to, right? Yeah. But if you if you're a person who's, you know, listening to this and you feel an inkling inside of you that like, maybe I would like to um, explore the forest at night. Maybe I would like to, you know, see what true dark skies look like, like get out of the city and, you know, see a black sky with stars twinkling in front of your face, like for the first time in your life. Maybe um, you want to know what it feels like, like to choose a scary goal, like something that um, you don't, you don't know if you're going to be able to do it. Like most of the things we do in our day-to-day lives, like we know before we start it, we can complete it, which is great. Like I love crossing things off my to-do list, but, um, I also like to try things that I don't know what's going to happen. Um, if you want to be in a, at an event where it's perfectly acceptable to put double stuff Oreos in your pocket and jog off into the forest, <laughs> you should try ultra running. Um, <laughs> swimming in high alpine lakes with your friends after a nice long run, holding a cold beer in your hand. Like, doesn't that sound really nice? Um, there are a million reasons to be an ultra runner, but you have to, I mean, you have to figure out all of us are out, you know, we're all stupid idiots out here doing stupid idiot things, but we all have a little bit different, a little di- a little bit different thing inside of us that's driving us. You have to find yours. That's a very good answer. Last question, arguably the most important question. Ultra runners are known for eating a lot of pizza. What is your favorite topping or two on a pizza? Barbecue chicken. I mean, that seems like kind of niche. Like how often when you're running, are you able to get your favorite topping on a pizza? Oh yeah, not very often. Okay. So basically most ultra ultra races are big disappointments to you. Because <laughs> each time you're like, maybe there will be barbecue chicken pizza at this aid station. Or maybe you're saying maybe afterwards. Oh, not during the race. I don't know if I've ever had a slice of za during a race. If you were in the middle of a race, and let's say I did show up with barbecue chicken pizza, would you eat it then? Or is that like a gross thing for you to eat during a race, but you would very happily eat it after? I would 100% eat it after. And during a race, if it was like a long race where you're kind of running a little bit slower and you can eat real food and, oh, if it was really hot, it probably wouldn't sound good. But if you came to me at the side of like a mountain hundred mile and you were like, I have a piece of barbecue chicken pizza, I would hug you. Okay. This is now like, I'm the, I have a weird like life checklist type of thing. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like this is now on that checklist of like, this just would be really cool. Like, oh, she'd be so happy. So I don't know. I like you so much. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I know I had said that was the last question, but maybe I'll sneak in one more. Are you willing to share with us maybe some upcoming race plans or is that stuff that you like to kind of keep close to the vest? I'm signed up for the Bear 100 Mile, which is um, the last weekend of September up in Utah, and it ends just in the border of Idaho. Um, It's a sort of an iconic Western, old school American hunter miler. Um, I've crewed it and paced it a couple times, but I'm really, I'm pretty stoked about running it this year. Well, that sounds outstanding. And, uh, and, you know, you've got to keep running 
somewhere between one and 30 more of these so we can get you to that hundred, you know, number of hundred ultras run. So uh, you're almost there, maybe. May I not get hit by a bus on my evening walk tonight? Yes, <laughs> yes. May, may that not happen. Um, but if you do, I will come deliver at the hospital <laughs> barbecue chicken pizza. <laughs> but I'd still probably better all for all parties if you just don't get hit by a bus. Yeah, so let's not do that. We're, we're wishing that for you. Um, Megan, listen, thank you so much uh, for, for this conversation. This has been really fun. And uh, people can go find your work at irunfar.com. That's us, yeah. And we have two books, one about ultra running and one about trail running. Um, Brian's book about ultra running is Relentless Forward Progress. And our shared book about trail running is Where the Road Ends, A Guide to Trail Running. We will put links to both of those books in the show notes to this episode. Thank you, Megan, for doing this. Um, Jonathan, Brendan, it was an honor that you chose me to be here with you. Mm. Well, listen, thanks so much for all the work that, that, uh, that you do um, and the outstanding event coverage. And uh, please, please keep doing it and uh, keep crushing in those races of your own uh, when, when you're getting out on the trail and, and hope that bear goes well. Thanks, Megan. That's it for this edition of Off the Couch. Thanks to Megan for the great conversation. And we will include links to the two books we talked about here in the show notes to this episode on the Blister website. Thanks also to Luke Alley for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening. If you are enjoying these Off the Couch episodes, we would very much appreciate it if you would tell your running loving or running hating friends about it. Leave us a nice note or review in iTunes or leave us a comment in the show notes to this episode on Blister to let us know what you think. Until next time, keep moving forward, and we will talk to you again next week.